0: Good morning. Thanks for being here with me this morning. I want to explore a couple of chapters of 1 Corinthians where we can see how loving God can be recognized and how we commit ourselves to be set apart for God. Setting apart is a way to understand to be holy, to to belong to God. That is a definition of holiness, personal holiness, social holiness. What is being worked inwardly and exactly that is going to be worked outwardly encapsulates love as God intended it. That is very foundational to United Methodists. John Wesley once said, the gospel of Christ knows no religion but social No holiness, but social holiness. So if God's love and God's purpose are the center of our lives, then all of the other important, valuable, but other stuff in life do need to be ranked with that in relation to that as the governing commitment that we have. Back in the early 90s, I recall an article, a newspaper article that got a lot of attention. And I don't know exactly now if it was based on facts, but it did create the need for a true dialogue for the sake of the stability for children. And the article's title was, Why do children's Toy makers watch the divorce rate. When the divorce rate rises, so do the toy sales. Parents and grandparents find themselves competing for the affection of children, so they buy toys. So I see the benefit and the value in offering a child at least some distraction some glimpse of joy while there's something much deeper and harder going on around their lives. But that example, I'm using it today only as an analogy because there is a risk that I want to point out when we settle for momentary distractions because we are either avoiding, whether we realize it or not, how to root ourselves in God, how to root a deeper, profound, authentic kind of love with and for God or because we are withholding areas in our lives that we actually don't want them to be competed with because we hold them with also some sort of affection or devotion. Every generation faces challenges and they're unique to their time. But I would say that from the Biblical times to our generations past today, and even forward, there's a lot of similarities in the reasoning, the whys, what motivates us, what are our struggles. We are too entangled often, we are caught up in so much. It is often said, we're too busy, we're too distant, maybe we're too self-driven. Paul writes to the believers in the community of Corinth. This is the second week I'm going to touch in 1 Corinthians. Please know, because I think it brings light to the reality of what they were going through, and it's good for us to know certain particularities besides what brings us together but did you know that when Paul was planting churches and he's writing letters like this one to the Corinthians he was writing letters to small churches relatively small because they met in houses so it wasn't crowds as many of us are used to maybe they met in a bigger house in a patron's home but it was still a home So the day-to-day life for them was much more connected, much more of what we are maybe used to. That can be a good thing. And you can imagine the gossip and how much easier it is to have negative things permeate and distort the community life. Why did Paul write about certain matters that I'm going to lift in just a few moments? Why did he bring those matters among many other challenges that they were experiencing? I want you to know that historians and scholars remind us that even the way we read the structure, often of the narratives, not all the time, but often of the narratives are intentionally put in a way to give emphasis. When we are reading something that has the list of challenges, take a look usually at what was written first and what is written at the end of the portion. Because it is believed that there was an emphasis to make sure that as readers, we remembered the beginning and the end. So with that in mind, let's take a look at what it is that he was talking and he mentioned first. They understood, excuse me, they did not understand how important and how valuable it was for their community of faith to remain or to grow healthy and holistically. That it mattered how they treated and how they addressed communal matters. So 1 Corinthians portions of chapter 6, and I will only then read verse 1 of chapter 7, and it reads like this. 6 verse 12, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are beneficial. 13, the body is meant not for fornication, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us by his power. Verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? If when you continue to read verse 15 through 16, I'm not going to read it because I want to be sensitive to perhaps younger viewers with us. And I'm going to use the word immorality when it's also used for the word fornication. When you go to chapter 7 verse 1, Paul starts like this. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, here is my response. So I invite you to read it on your own time. A great deal of chapter 6 is the groundwork, and it talks about sexual immorality. And then the 40 verses in chapter 7 brings cases about immorality in marriages, immorality in the society, aspects of marriage and aspects of divorce and being a widow and being unmarried. Why is Paul addressing sexual immorality. The church of the time was tolerating immorality within the church. Paul talks about the need to stop that. But to stop it with the love and the intent that we need to draw people and point them towards repentance, starting with ourselves and he talks about how the connection must be made. Now, if when you read it, and I hope you read it, maybe some of you will say, what of this topic was actually a challenging, or why was it an immoral reality that they were facing or struggling with? Please know, Roman law permitted prostitution, and forbade fornication only if both parties were of a particular background, aristotic births of the higher upper class. There's inconsistency. The original Greek text that refers to immorality is porneia, which is the root for Pornography. There was an ideology, by the way, roaming around the community and unfortunately getting into the church, that sins that were external acts and had no effect in the body were not considered a sin. Therefore, the logic was that if it does not affect the body, then there is no immorality to the commitment that I am offering to the Lord. There was another ideology in the community permeating and floating around the church that said, if sin does affect the body, but it's this kind of immoral sin, it's my business. It's an individual, private matter. And surely that cannot affect the community. That's what they were dealing with and Paul addresses and cuts right through that and says that is heresy, that is incorrect. Paul says, just because there are some laws here and there are some loops to it, doesn't make it right. So now I wanna repeat with all that in mind, that's what verse 12 is talking about all things are lawful for me, but not all things are beneficial. Verse 19 reads like this. Do you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Now, I'm going to add it real quick before we assume that this clause of bought with a price, it's talking about the ransom that Jesus Christ paid on that cross. Not exactly that. He's actually taking another context situation so that they can understand it. And it was normal to have slaves. It was normal. It was common to have girls as slaves for sexual immorality. So he's talking about, um, you guys all know what it's like to buy persons as property and have a certain kind of tier level to it. And based on the price, there was an element of honor. For other groups, celibacy was considered a sin because reproduction was essential. And it was a blessing. And without it, something must have been wrong. And it was then a way to practice reproduction and being married, a way to practice self-control in order to avoid sexual immorality. Then there's other groups that would say marital faithfulness was a guardian against sexual immorality. So the widow and the divorced were looked down upon chapter 7 just so you know paul says celibacy or being married are both good in the sense that the point is honor god in whatever season of your life in whatever season we're living There is no season to take a break and let loose. That's a Western thing, an expectation maybe for young people and then settle down. What he's saying, and with the terms of that context, that a lot of it maybe doesn't resonate with you and me, but underneath it and foundationally it does. Every season of our lives, whatever status, whatever point in my life, I am to honor God with my entire being. I find it quite ironic when on television or on the big screen, before you watch whatever, there is this um, uh, discretion advice for um, mature audiences only. Now, there are some kind of big screen movies or programming that that label for mature audience is a nice way of saying it's something that not a ch- a, a child or, or 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 young, shapeable mind should be watching. And here's my question: Then, what is our definition of maturity? And then I'm going to take it a step further. How exactly do you think God defines Christian maturity? It's little things like that in our context that can glaze over, but they're actually um, realities that we're challenged with. And personal holiness and social holiness is an obligation, it's a responsibility. Not that God is gonna force you, but that we are to freely and enthusiastically want to belong to God. And if so, it also involves for us to, to honor God with all of us, with all of ourselves, including our body. The church is not about uh, policing you, but there is accountability in the word of God, which is why Uh, a sermon like this is brought which is why Sunday school and youth groups we have to talk about matters applicable and according to the age but we need to bring truth to set us free to not be enslaved to spiritual bondage and to sin for all who declare that Christ is Lord we must follow Jesus did not call us to become managers who dictate which sin is worse than the other and which sin is redeemable and which one is meant to be sat on a bench indefinitely. This is not about throwing the first stone. That's taking out a context. We have to remember when Jesus said that, he was talking to a crowd saying, Who is going to throw the first stone to condemned? But what this is all about is who is going to be here hoping for redemption? Accountability is what Paul was talking about. We are to offer ourselves with love and grace and we are to offer the message of truth and hope for others to receive the love and grace through Jesus Christ. The younger generation today is showing I think it I think they should be commended for the level of empathy that we can notice young people today are asking and are wondering about what we're actually doing for the marginalized and for the sick this community right here incredible movements for justice to be heard and that's wonderful young people The risk, though, is that they're not convinced about the mission of the church. And then I'm going to also point out a greater risk. Very reliable source for many ministers, the Pew Research Center, had a poll, had a survey in 2016 of almost 1,500 teens. And it tells us that 65% said, that if your beliefs offend someone or hurt their feelings, it is probably wrong. It sounds nice, but that is an overcorrection that is confusing our children and our youth or seekers. There is a difference between showing empathy and lacking conviction. And as believers, we are to grapple with this, and study it, and practice it, and confess when we get it wrong. Let's remember that all of us, including adults, are being constantly inundated with information and ideas all day long. And our minds are being saturated. So we may not be all confined into a small house church like the Corinthians, but we have the world at our fingertip every second of the day. And not just children and youth. All of us. So a church that looks the other way, or people who follow people of influence, who dismiss the importance of social holiness, Or family members who look the other way when there are flags of immorality or inconsistencies and hurt and sin in the household. That's a problem. Lack of holiness is lack of loving the fact that we belong to God. And God sets us apart to be holy. John 21 verse 15 to always make a cohesive match with the Gospels Jesus asked Simon Peter do you love me more than these he said yes he was asked a second time and a third time do you love me and then when Simon Peter said yes what did Jesus say feed my sheep Private and social holiness should be one of the same and at the center of our lives. The quote or the idea that I can get away with it or it's not that big of a deal is a response never okay with God. A declaration of piety and righteousness without the works, faith in action, is a problem they just might be distractions excuses justifications momentary or reflections that we're actually struggling with a competing loyalty to something else authentic self-analysis of your heart is a practice of submission to god's work in your life What comes out of that self-awareness when we lack the self-awareness we have way too much pride and we don't even see it there's foolishness there's arrogance manifestation of pride shaped by grace when we submit to that proud ownership and master of god upon our lives then we are shaped by God's grace and that helps us to confess our failures, to stay away from it after we confess it because it's indicating us, it's moving us towards holiness and towards a whole or holistic kind of life. Justifying grace, that convicting moment, that feeling powerful um, moving in our hearts that is telling me that it's nudging me, that it's bothering me, even shaming me. I'm doing something wrong. doesn't matter whether everyone or no one sees it. I sense it. There's there's something powerful of justifying grace. And when you're sensing that, when you are experiencing that, may you have the courage to embrace justifying grace, to confront it, to be cleansed, to be healed, to be restored by Jesus Christ. Grace gives us the courage to risk the failure just for the pursuit of God's mission. And we are on mission. We need to continue renewing our lives and we need to continue being welcoming to other people, as many people as possible to be part of a community that is all about healing and redeeming. So I finish with this. Salvation is both an immediate, an instantaneous gift we can receive, but it's also ongoing. Salvation is personal, and it's also social. Salvation includes both God-unmerited gift, but also includes and welcomes your initiative and your response. God transforms crucifixion into resurrection. Sin, salvation, sinner to saint. May that be the breakthrough kind of love and grace that you are willing to receive, encouraged to receive, and belong to with God and with all of us striving onto perfection. God bless you.